So digital gardening, you and I connected quite a bit, I think, over the last yeah. year and a half, maybe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, origin stories or timelines, because most of the interesting thing to me about this whole concept, it's gotten an interesting amount of fanfare. I'm very interested in the element of it, how new words emerge and how we decide what they mean, right? Because everyone's a bit like fretting over the definition is the key theme of it. There's a big question a lot of people had in the beginning of how is this different to a normal website or a blog? Why are you inventing words? And how a concept or an idea can propel people to take certain actions or to change their values towards certain things. So I'm interested in the power of a word in a way uh, and the way that digital gardening has captured a feeling or an ethos that was maybe brewing and has all gathered around this term. You're a very deep thinker. Now, I just really spend too much time thinking about language. I, I do too. There's one element of language which I also think is very powerful, which is that names have a weird power on what you do. And mm-hmm. names kind of shape your thought. I think this is called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Yeah. And so I think digital gardening, when, when people turn their mentality from, hey, I blog or, hey, I create content to, hey, I'm a digital gardener, their guard comes down and that lets them create more or just get over some hump that they had before. So I'd be interested in how you came to the term. Because I know you've been blogging and writing for ages pre-digital gardening as a concept. So mm-hmm. I'm interested how, when you came across it and how it changed your behavior around writing and publishing. I think, I'm not sure exactly where I came across it. I think it may have been Joel Hooks who wrote mm-hmm. his blog post on digital gardening, or he wrote a blog post called, this is not a blog, it's a digital garden. But I'm actually not sure. I, it may have been someone else in that mental space for me. And then I misattributed it to Joel Hooks because he wrote the definitive blog post. That does seem likely. So yeah, I was definitely exposed Joel. So I, I work with Joel, so I, I get to talk to him and hang out with him quite a lot. And I'll give him, I want to give him all the credit on this in a way, where, to be fair, Tom Critchlow wrote an article in 2018 that was based off an article that Mike Caulfield wrote. And Mike Caulfield really is the originator of this concept. So he wrote this piece called The Garden and the Stream in 2015 that talked about content streams and the difference between having a feed of content versus a topology. So talking about the web as space and the web is interconnection that is not hooked to time and to timelines and to the new. So he, I, I, they, they were really the originator of this idea. I know Tom Critchlow read that and wrote a piece. Joel read Tom Critchlow's piece and wrote a piece. And from what I can tell from very mild historical tracking in Twitter, those three were early adopters and then it grew from there. I think you somewhat gardened digital gardeners because you also popularized <laughs> the term quite a bit with your repo. I know, I feel like I got too much credit for that. I like put together a Twitter thread and then and then it became I got a bunch of VCs following me as if I like had insight into the new upcoming hot thing on the internet, which is quite funny. So I just wanted to DM them and be like, sorry, it's not gonna be very insightful so, from here on. Anthropology is not. Yeah, I think yeah. I also think by the way that you always have a very interesting sort of liberal artsy take on whatever's happening in tech. Maybe for those who might be new to you, I think a bit about your background is instructive because it's super unique, and, and I think you and I, like, we take a bit of our liberal arts uh, side into tech. Yes, for sure. So, yeah, were you a liberal arts college person as well? I did, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Business and international relations, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah, it has plenty of crossover there. So, yeah, I definitely have tried to, there's the big joke, right, like liberal arts degrees, what are you going to do with that? It's definitely true. I went to a very classical, like, lefty, hippie, lots of granola and environmental science majors, college in Washington State. 
that was we read all the western classics and and a few eastern ones thrown in for quote unquote diversity we took like philosophy and anthropology classes and i ended up majoring in anthropology and it was wonderful and it did give me a very like strong perspective on on certain things and a strong foundation in social science i was for sure unemployed the minute i graduated and like waitress and you know started doing web design because it's the only thing that made money so I think there's some bits missing from the liberal arts curriculum, obviously, but on the whole, in later career, I have found that the perspective it gave me early is invaluable. I really do appreciate uh, being able to look at things and have a bunch of anthropological theory to, to draw on, to help understand them or to help think, them, think about how they kind of work and what factors have gone into them. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I didn't have a, a classical education like that. I don't know, but I, I think I come at things from more of a philosophical bit as well as like a theory of success. I, I was very obsessed with this class that I had in business school called The Literature of Success, where this guy literally studied, one, one of my professors, G. Richard Shell. he studied all the self-help books out there, like all of them, and he just grouped them into four schools of thought. And I was what, you can do that? Yeah. It, was actually, it was actually really good because we just went through all of them and just decided that entire schools were crap or not. And it, it was really good fun. But, but yeah, yeah. so it's like this thing, right? Like, do you digital garden to have success? Or do you digital garden to, like, why do you digital garden? The, yeah, the, like, I want to try and think about how to phrase this. It's not the affordances of the digital garden. And this is maybe where I know you'd been, yeah, writing a lot before it came to the title, what it co-evolved organically, which I actually like as a, a linguistic theory. I don't think it's like digital gardening was happening in the world and we saw it and put a label on it. And that's like kind of the end of the story. I very much like the idea of how language and words arise is that some people recognize a pattern in human behavior, they begin to put a label on it, people hear about that label and in reaction, they continue that behavior and it's a back and forth sort of conversation. Mm -hmm. Like uh, an anthropologist I love called Tim Engold talks about inquiry as, a, as like a mode of um, response and reaction in the world, like just everything we're doing is this conversation with each other and, and with our environments and it's this organic holistic flow, it's very like philosophy anthropology <laughs> yeah have you come across have you come across devon oh yeah she's wonderful i haven't seen her on the clubhouse I, I, I guess she's too busy being insightful to so so i just wanted to like mark out my own journey in that mm -hmm. i think before digital garden became a thing i actually was following in her footsteps so what she does is when she writes a blog post which is like an opinion or something new that she discovered she would put down her epistemological origins god i hate pronouncing that i love that <laughs> love that word it's how do you epistemology is the study of how what you know and i'm very obsessed by that if you don't know how you, then you haven't really examined where your beliefs come from so she declares it up front like what work have i put into this opinion and how strongly do i believe it right now and it gives you the space to to put up half-baked thoughts and just go yeah, this is just a theory I, I i don't know if i believe it yeah i'm just gonna put it out there and see if it resonates to this is the next big insight about how the universe works. And it's a huge range, but it liberates you to actually just write more. Because I think a lot of people have this high bar for, they only write down things that they, they really want to make a statement on, like for the permanent record. Whereas where she, like, just like by stating what your origins are and your strength that your belief are, she reduces that load on herself. And, and so I started to adopt that. And then I think this digital learning term came along and then I, pivoted into that. And then I wrote uh, the blog post about the, the safe harbor, or uh, I think it was like a terms of service thing about yeah. <laughs> yeah, people who come in and out of my digital garden, what they expect and what uh, my contract is with them. 
yeah, if people haven't spotted that, so on, on Twix's blog, it's, it's like a digital gardening time service. This is when, when I was like, I was doing a full scan of the internet articles related to the term or who had written about it, mentioned it. And I came across this early. I just, I love this because it, it captures the ethos of it so well. So yeah, it's things like how much you're supposed to disclose what you know and how you know it, but then consideration of others, how you're supposed to respond to feedback what people reading your garden should expect. And I fully agree that the the strength of being able to explicitly name the limitations of our knowledge and for us to be able to have the freedom to put things out and go, as far as I know, these are some thoughts I've been having, this is some information and data I've been collecting. I could completely be wrong. You have to be open to that, which honestly should be the policy across the entire internet. Like just this idea that Sorry, so I have I have I constantly struggle with this. People think that I have some sort of platform, which like, okay, wh- whatever. I I don't even think so. But th- does great platform come great responsibility? In, in other words, like they people have seen me post stuff that was wrong or like that I changed my opinion on like within days, sometimes minutes, and and then they're like, oh, you shouldn't write that, and I'm like, but I changed my opinion because I wrote that. Yeah. Like, I think even, this makes me think of, it might have been even Devin Ziegel that might have tweeted this at some point, that we have very poor affordances in our current web interfaces for forgiveness and mistakes and having, like, gracious space for people to fail in public. Like, we don't have any affordances for that. Everything is designed for make a statement, respond to it, you get into a discussion. There's not a lot of editing and revision in a way that, like, shows it was edited, but, but acknowledges and allows people to change their mind. Oh God, yes. Yeah. How do you do that, by the way? I, I, have you wrestled with this? And with the gardening, right? So I, I have on my post now like a, a planted date and a, a last tended date. So that's right, the date I started it and then the date I've last updated it. And it's one of those where like, I, I would love like a, a Git log, which my, my website's open source. People could go onto GitHub and see past things I had. But when you're just browsing the, the server side actual page of it, you can't really see past edits or, or what's changed or how the post has evolved over time. So that's just not something I'm willing to like sink months into understanding how to do that in Gatsby. I would love that. Again, I think that the infrastructure around digital gardening as an ethos, because right now so much of our web infrastructure is designed for the personal blog or the e-commerce site, right? We've come up with these formats of what we think a website should be. And then we build in Gatsby or Next or whatever things to suit those. We don't have a lot of digital gardening aligned infrastructure at the moment. I would love to see that emerge in the next few years. Things like Git logs, epistemic disclosure built into templates, bi-directional linking in a way that's easy, more ways to organize and filter data and see it in various views that isn't just linear, isn't just time-based. Sorry, my to-do list, or well, not to-do list, <laughs> wish list is... Yeah, I think, so when you get a bunch of devs in a room and you talk learning in public, which is the other sort of related concept that I do, and blogging and, and writing and stuff like that. You get very dragged down into tools right away. And it's, it's weird because like, it's not about tools, but then the tools help you do these things. Mm-hmm. Medium is the message that I always think about. I, I need to come up with a new term for medium is the message because I feel like this is not it. This is not like a medium. This is like a tool for thought is the message or tool for thought is the thought. Like I think of, I think of Neil Postman. Mm-hmm. He wrote a bunch of really good books, Technopoly. And in the front, the, one of the first chapters is called The Medium is the Metaphor. So it's a slight twist on the medium is the message, saying that the medium frames the way we look at something, but it's not necessarily the thing itself, which is what Marshall McLuhan, the originator of the medium is the message. By that, he didn't mean it like in the strong argument sense, but it's no. communication. Yeah, he was actually surprisingly, it was, it's weird. So first of all, did you know that it was, it's, he actually published the book 
as medium is the massage or the, uh, yeah. Yes, right. there's a print error, right? <laughs> That's what he says, but I don't know if I should believe that because it, it could just be a troll for all time. Because Yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway. And then the other thing I, I enjoy about Neil Coulson is I think he had a book like Entertaining Yourself to Death, something like yes. that. Yes. That really sticks with me, by the way. That's like, this is like off topic from Digital Gardening, but I think about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have a copy of it that's like very heavily marked up. I think it's been a few years since I've read it and it was pre when I was like into taking notes and second brain stuff. So oh. I don't have good evergreen notes on it, but it's on the shelf. So, okay, since you brought it up, what's the relationship between second brain and digital gardening? And maybe we, we can both talk about it. We, we, we did the course. <laughs> yeah, I will say, yeah, second, we're talking about building a second brain with Diego Forte's course, which is about personal knowledge management and tangentially about note-taking systems and how you curate personal knowledge and how you use it in your sort of daily work as a knowledge worker, which probably qualify as. So I can say second brain certainly got me much more into note-taking and personal management stuff and feeds into the digital gardening habit. But I think yours is the same. Some people treat their digital gardens as one-to-one mirrors of their note system, whatever it is, whatever platform they have it in. Maybe they'll publish all the notes, but they mark some as public and those are the reflections. It's much more of a notebook. Whereas the style of digital gardening I, I see you doing and the, the version I do is notes are less raw notes as much as they are the beginnings of blog posts or the beginnings of in, in production, but they're not necessarily my raw notes on this book, the sort of style. Yeah, basically I, I want to share more. I just haven't got around to it yet. <laughs> I built my blog, <laughs> then I started writing and then this whole thing became a thing. And then I was just like, oh, I don't have time to build more like infrastructure. <laughs> Look at you know, who makes people feel bad about this. Andy, Andy, Andy. No, it's always Andy. This is so good. And we just have to give up. <laughs> yeah. He like, he, he has these like layers that you, whatever you click, like internal links, it just like slides another layer and pops it, builds mm-hmm. a stack of like concepts that you're reading and you can pop off the stack and go back. It's just beautiful to watch, but I will never build it. Yeah, keep clones. There's a Gatsby theme you can use that's, it might be called Andy Brain Notes or something, but it's that exact theme, Gatsby. And the, yeah, the infrastructure is certainly, yeah, the infrastructure is certainly really cool and, and it's wonderful, right? About keeping context and links between things. When you have two notes, you can just slide back and forth between and it's not this whole page jump. The UX is, is beautiful. But this concept of evergreen notes to me was like the far more valuable bit of his notes page is this concept of you have notes that are things you believe that are across topics so it's not specific to one thing it's they go across different um, ideas they have titles that are like apis is the way he puts it so uh, they're sort of an entryway into a single contained thought that could be a few paragraphs long but your title is the synopsis of that idea and they mirror what gets called a zettelkasten, which is another big topic. In. So evergreen notes are essentially the same thing as a, a zettel from this concept of zettelkasten, which Nicholas Luhmann came up with in insert year, I forget right now. He was like a German sociologist. Anyway, this idea of having these essential notes that sort of form the basis of your belief system and understanding of the world, and from them you build up longer essays or longer posts but you have these sort of pure atoms of things you're quite sure of and have links to where you learned them or discovered them or, or how they came to you and that concept to me was really like the golden nugget in Andy's public notes less than the infrastructure yeah yeah I, I do wonder because Andy is such a unique person I do want to also share when I find other people who are doing interesting and similar things there's someone who posted like this wiki called Everything I Know, Nikita Volokhov. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, so it's even funny. Well, I feel like Nikita hasn't even gotten as much of the credit as they should too. Actually, at the last Building Second Brain meetup we hosted here in London before lockdown hit, so it might have been in November or December, and we had it open so anyone who was interested in building a second brain or note-taking practices could come, whether they were in the course or not. And I challenged Nikita there. It was a small group. It was only 20 of us, and a lot of them have gone on to be part of the digital gardening movement and or just big into note-taking practices. And Nikita came and showed the whole system and talked a lot about how much they believe sharing online and learning in public is important. And they're sort of, they were far ahead of where most of the rest of us were at that point. This is like, I don't know what year anything is anymore. 2019. Anyway, it was just overwhelming. We're like, wow, you're really far ahead. The rest of us in Rome had just opened onto the scene. We're just sort of fumbling about with private notes. And, and yeah, Nikita's public wiki is incredible to look through. Yeah, for those, it's wiki.nikitavolobov.xyz, or you can just search on Hacker News for some post called Everything I Know, which is very ambitious, but it's true. He covers, yeah. I started just recommending this because it's a very clean layout. You can search it, you can link between nodes. It's all the good stuff without the, the without lock into tools. Like it, it, it very much illustrates the, illustrates the concept. But yeah, I, I want to do this. I just haven't gone onto it. I have a loosely held together ball of mud yeah uh, uh, between notion um, simple note and and one note because i keep bouncing between tools i don't know what do you use yeah i'm definitely i'm, I'm very in rome just because i got in there early and a system that works for me there's tons of great open source alternatives to it as well i don't want to be like a rome cult person that sort of i think gets a bit cool lady which is totally understandable right mm -hmm. it was a very transformative tool when it came out but there's plenty of alternatives if you don't want to go the rome route but the affordances of bi-directional linking it picking up on unlinked references and just having notes that don't live in particular locations, right? They're not in a specific folder. They are just part of an open graph that can have multiple links between a single block. That mental model I have found really liberating in terms of making interconnections between concepts and being able to build up structures from sort of atomic notes. Yeah, yeah. Not, not again, sorry to, sorry to get into a discussion about tools, but like, no, like tools are enable thought, yeah. So. I don't know if it's the right thing. What are, what are your um, thoughts? I feel like I've been asking you a lot of questions, but what are questions that you're you're pondering? That's a question about questions. Ooh, what am I pondering? Part of me is interested in, like, the digital gardening metaphor, right? We talk a bit about metaphors for a minute, only because that's, okay, indulge me. Metaphors highlight certain concepts and hide others. Whatever we're trying to speak about, we pick metaphors that, that sort of pull out certain aspects and elements and make others invisible. The web as garden pulls out, you know, maintenance, it pulls out growth over time, it pulls out works in progress, and, and topology, right, and, and the web as space, uh, which is very different to the metaphor of the web as paper, which is that very dominant one we hold if we have the printed word on the screen and everything is white and we move between pages when we go back and forth between websites. So I think a lot about how metaphors that we use change the way we build and design for the web um, and what we think the web can do and how we, especially when we're building personal spaces and we have agency over the website, if, you know, the code, be able to frame it and design it in a certain way. And get so that weird. was long-winded. Sorry, was I coming across? Yeah, we... uh, I was just saying, I, I like it when people get weird. Yeah, it's a Gatsby starter and, and stop there. And, and I'm just going to plug your site for people who, because you don't have your site in, in your bio. That's a rookie mistake. Maggie's new to... Sorry, I don't know how to club. I don't know how to club us. It's maggieappleton.com and your metaphors are like your stock and trade. You mm -hmm. really take metaphors very seriously. And I, I think it's really great. How to join invisible concepts is one of my classic sort of references. And I think you, you do, you're like a professional 
metaphor. I wish that was a job. I wish it was like <laughs> metaphor designer. Anyway, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Coming back to like alternative metaphors, right? Because we talked, we started this talk. Okay. I remember how we started. We did, we talked about Twitter and we were like, there are other forms of gardening. Are there terms for it? Or people, right. other, other analogies that people wanted to come up with. And to make this also meta, I think that there's a missing name for what this clubhouse phenomenon is. This is not gardening. It's something else. Yeah. yeah. Conversation. But it's, it's an, okay, okay, I don't know what, actually what the metaphorical framing quite, maybe this is why clubhouse is actually both interesting and confusing because we don't have a mental model for exactly how this works yet. So it's like conversation, but then, but everyone listening right now, right, we, we sort of have the right to, to let you speak without as far as I understand how the system works, which involves raised hands and permissioning. So it's not a conversation because you don't really have the same affordances that you would in a big room, except for, okay, social norms. If you're in a big room and someone's the speaker, anyone that yells from the audience is stepping out of line. But they have that option. They have that affordance available to them. I don't know. Do you have metaphorical ideas for how to understand this? I don't have a name for it. So we could maybe workshop this right now. Okay. So have you, do you know how musicals get developed? Someone <laughs> writes the book, which is like the lyrics and somewhat some tunes. And then they, they have the, they have some composer kind of flesh out the rest. Uh, and this is, by the way, how Lin-Manuel Miranda does it. I, I, I don't, there, there probably are a few different ways of, of doing it. But then eventually, and then you get a producer and, and who puts some money behind it and, and hires all the relevant people. But before you hit Broadway, you actually workshop the the musical in like in in like an off off Broadway location where it's very explicitly a workshop. There's no sets. It's it's just initial actors singing out what they think it is, and, and they test the audience reaction, and and that can that process can take a year before they actually decide to finalize the, the the musical and then go to Broadway. That workshopping period is a low risk, low exposure period. Like they might just cancel the whole thing if it just doesn't work. Or they may swap out entire casts, they may swap out entire songs and it, it doesn't matter. And so that just so that by the time it hits Broadway, it's pretty much set in stone, right? Like you have to do a cast recording, you like people judge you based on your premiere. It's a very high risk thing. So having a place to workshop makes things, having a safe place to workshop ideas makes it easy to launch high quality things which you have a lot of confidence in. And I think this is a very similar concept in comedy, stand-up comedy in particular. The, even top stand-up comedians will, will do the small bars, the comedy sellers in New York, and they'll, they'll travel around and, and they'll do small venues because they're small and because no one's going to remember them because they're not recorded so that they can get data for the big specials. So I'm building up to I think Clubhouse is that. And I don't know what the gardening metaphor is. You're literally, you're planting to see what the seed is. And then you're throwing away the whole thing. That's really interesting. I do love that as the metaphor because it makes me think of local meetups. Uh, right before you go do a conference talk, you test it at local meetups first. And some of them might be recorded and some might not. But it is that low pressure way to just test it out on an audience of 20 to 30 and if it goes badly no one's going to remember it's just afterwards you're just chatting over pizza it's not some sort of high stakes situation but i really like that metaphor of comedy clubs meetups even to some degree uh larger meetups of friends because you know how you test an idea in the zoom call with someone you talk to regularly you just chuck out concepts and toss it back and forth and develop it from there and then maybe you try it out in a bigger group and get a more reaction 
So it's something in between that and the full-blown, quote-unquote, performance of, of the web where you'd make a video or a blog post. Yeah, exactly. I just, what's the, again, what's the metaphor? I'm going to go with local meetups until we get a better one. But the, <laughs> I do agree that I don't feel like gardening fits in here, only because I think so much of gardening with, as having artifacts to it right, is the thing. And when you're gardening your notes, they, they are an artifact evolving and people can interact with them without you being present you've talked about that a lot with learning in public versus this is centered around the real-time interaction of real-time conversation and doesn't produce an artifact unless you intend it to yeah yeah that's true yeah that's why something like clubhouse i think offends the aesthetics of, of digital gardeners because we like artifacts we like producing and growing them over time and this doesn't do that that's it. This, this is a recorded then. Clubhouse. So we will <laughs> yeah. have some sort of artifact to, to fall back on if people miss out. I think one of the issues with Clubhouse is that it's exclusive. I'm always trying to share that with people who can't come on. Yeah. I can see Norman uh, has his hand raised and I want to invite him in. Woohoo! Yeah, we never addressed this, uh, by the way, but Maggie's got the con and I, I, I guess it, yeah, it's, good, it's good to invite people up. It's just not just the two of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. I put my hand up mainly just to say when you were when you two were talking about what kind of metaphor would fit that situation where you'd want to test in small, controlled, safe environments and then get feedback, response, and then slowly test, you know, these things over time. I immediately, I immediately went to farming as a metaphor. So in farming, you have multiple fields. So rows where you want to test out whether or not the soil is good, the environment is well. And instead of putting all your money into one specific plant where you don't know if it's going to be sold very well, if it's going to grow very well, you just want to test it out on one field and then get responses, get back, sell it to a couple of people at the market and see if they like what you've grown. And from there you re reiterate, I guess that's one way to take, say, conversations from like the most atomic form of the amount of insight you can get from the serendipity between two people talking. You catch those little golden moments. And if you put them on a public stage, like a clubhouse room, when all these people are listening to what you know people are saying, then you take a little bit of that, then you see the feedback and response, and slowly you grow over time. At least that's the first image that comes to mind in terms of a metaphor, but maybe that might spark some ideas for the book view. Yeah, very cool. Um, I, I don't know. I, the, the problem is I like never farmed, so I don't know. <laughs> I can't claim to have farmed much either. I'm going to say one summer in university that was not very fruitful. But I want to say I love that metaphor or the or even just playing with that metaphor because I like that too of just trying metaphors on the sides. And taking farming as an extension of gardening, it allows us to think right of the different you know qualities and functions that, that farming sort of has. Because then you can talk about having multiple farmers on one field. Um, you can talk much more about, yeah, varieties of crops. Like I love that point that I don't know that I've seen that talked about a lot in terms of gardening, of diversity of medium um, and, and one of the qualities of digital gardening. Images and notes and videos and podcasts and, and expanding the medium of the web off of just this obsessive text focus. Um, so I like that element. It makes me think too about like fertilizers, whether we could bring that in somewhere, not bringing in Monsanto, but additions to digital farms that it encourage growth or make things incredibly fertile. Anyway, I think there's just an interesting metaphorical. This thing has given me a little bit of an idea. So gardening, you do it for yourself and or some aesthetic sense, and it's maybe for self-subsistence, but farming you're doing for sort of output. 
to to feed and serve other people. So I like that, right? Like it, it, it is more outward focused because you're intentionally workshopping multiple different ideas at once with the intention to pick the best and publish it as more of a formal artifact. That's more farming than gardening, right? So perhaps that's what it is. And interesting that you reframe it that way, especially when then you want to emphasize the intention behind what you're growing, which makes it much more important. If you want to broaden that out even more, if we're talking about this same analogy, you'd want to think about getting into a communal context or environment where you can speak with other farmers on how they are growing the same plants. They are dealing with the different, and coming back into note-taking, the different formats, the different mediums. How are they navigating through that? What insights and what wisdom can they pull out from, say, drawing a thought that they've had throughout the day or talking to someone about the thought that they've had throughout the day? Which I, which when I came into this room, I, there, there was a question in my head that I was, I do want to ask to both of you. How does the change in medium affect your trying to grow an evergreen note or a settle or a thought? And I'm curious about the both of you especially for Maggie, because I know you do visual illustrations, like illustrative notes. So is there a switch that gets turned on in like your thinking when it comes to drawing something as opposed to writing it out in blocks or something along those lines? Yeah, I can go. And then I also want to hear from your thoughts. On um, I can definitely say working in visual medium, so illustrating or trying to graphically lay out uh, a concept versus having to write it in text drastically changes the way I'm able to think, the the direction the thoughts go in, the way I'm un- able to understand things or map them out. Like I'll map things out in Miro or hit a visual tools a lot. And I wish I could do this on the web, but like the web from the beginning, Tim Berners-Lee imagined it as interlinked documents and it is obsessed about text and linear text, top left to bottom. It is such a strict format and trying to put graphics on the web, you're trying to write SVGs in text. It's the most unintuitive thing. The point is, I would love to do more variety of media, but the affordances of the current tools we have just don't allow for it. Like when I'm working in Rome, so text-based. I just, I'm not able to think in certain ways, and that is like a price I have to pay in order to use the tools we currently have. Maybe in some beautiful future, like Brett Victor will invent real tools for thought for free out of his work. He's yeah, too busy playing with real real life objects. Tangible computing so much. But yeah, we're away from that. So at the moment I'll say the, the current tools are serious thought limitations, uh, which is very frustrating. But there's ways to work around it, sketching on an iPad and, and uploading the PNG. It's just a poor substitute for what it really should be. What was the question again? <laughs> How does the medium that you choose to expand uh, your thinking affect that note or that thought? And I'd, I'd love to hear your answer too. I, yeah, I, I just use different mediums for that. Actually, uh, Twitter is part of my system. But people think that I, I'm, I'm somehow getting this reputation for threads when, and then they do tweet storms and tag me for inspiration. But I don't do tweet storms. I do threads over time because I think that's a immutable log of how new information arrives, and I can just tag it onto the end of a, a thread on Twitter. That's really good. And then the blog post. Okay, so on my site, I have these five categories, which I've mapped out. So essays, talks, podcasts, tutorials, and notes. I think for the written form, we should have three, basically everyone should have three, three forms. One's an essay, that, that's like an opinion. Tutorials, like how to do X. And then notes are just like things you learned or things that are in development that could be developed in an essay. 
or a tutorial. That's where I have things right now. And then talks and podcasts, obviously speaking in, in video, like audio video medium. Yeah, that's where I have things right now. And and that leaves me with a bit of leeway to to write different formats. But yeah, I wish I had more of a, I like the way Maggie does it with formal categorization of this is a seedling or this is an evergreen idea or whatever. And then I think you have one more, which is budding. Yeah. So I, I, I like that. I just haven't got to it yet. But actually ha- having, a, having a clear genre for what we are working on right now lets you answer less questions and focus more on, on a particular piece. And I think that's very helpful. So then I also have recently started doing audio essays. So I created a mixtape, which I'm doing every day. And that lets me basically experiment in a new format. And that is also helping me think as well. I'll leave it there. I need to listen to those. I'm a big audio guy. So being able to hear how people are thinking out loud, coming back to those scientists who do audio journals and they just do monologues to themselves each and every day, updates on their experiments and their hypotheses and all of that, like that. It's, it's almost romantic right? in a way where you're on the pursuit of trying to discover like a new thing and having that out there. And I, before I forget, Maggie, you mentioned about how it's mainly text-based right now, current tools for thought. I do want to point out the tool upcoming app, Cosmic, which I think might be of interest to you. I'm not sure if you checked it out yet, but their beta is coming out very soon. And I've seen the beta, uh, like the, the founder, Pat, like the founder gave me a demo and think of it as a visual room. So images Ooh. are images, visuals, sketches, uploads, etc., are in universes. So their analogy, their metaphors is the universe, spaces, etc. So more space oriented. And you can do visual transclusion. So you can group images, pieces of things that you've uploaded together into cards. Those cards are basically collections of the same thing. So the if you want to make it parallel to Rome, it will be like nesting blocks underneath this parent block. And this parent block is this border where you have the closed context information put in there. And from there, you can publish that as a page. So that becomes this like organic universe where you can go in and visit the page. But the best part is the universe or the workspace in which you're putting in all these like crazy items that you can mix and match and whatever, you can visit that space itself. So that becomes this like amazingly interesting space that you can explore just like you would a digital garden. But instead of it being atomic notes or notes determined by their progress or by their category. It's more like, this is the space that this person has created. Let me navigate it through my own unique way. And it could just be like left clicking, escape, go over there, go all the way to the end of the space, etc. There, there are people who look at, who have also observed the limitations of text only tools for thought. They're like, we want some more visual stuff. So those are more coming out. Can, I, you, say, I, can you say the name of this tool again? Yeah, Cosmic. So K-O-S-M-I-K. And if I could quickly find the... Lithium.parts. Yeah. Not Paris. Okay. I think, yeah. Wait, let me say. It's a iPad app. Let me, let me try and find the link really quickly. I'll, I'll say out the Twitter. Yeah, it's, it's Lithium.Paris. The Twitter is uh, Cosmic underscore app. Two Ks. Yes. And this is very similar to Muse, Muse app by Adam Wiggins who is a co-founder of Heroku. This one I know that I think the Stripe, the Collison brothers actually use. It looks very similar. And, and Maggie, to your comment about how the web wasn't really designed for thought, it looks like these two new apps are a bit. Have you seen either of these? No, I hadn't. I'd seen Croft, 
and and I haven't seen the ones. I'm trying to Google it. The the Google search for these weird stuff. But I'm gonna make you guys send me. Um, yeah, musef.com. I've been quite enjoying their podcast as well. They're building their company in public, which is very. Oh, cool. I had seen this one actually, and mm-hmm. I definitely kept my eye on this because I yeah I thank goodness for these people like people who have actually understood like humans we are embodied creatures who live in a spatial world and like to remember <laughs> things based on their location like how has it taken us this long to figure out to put that on the screen it's just incredible we're too busy moving boxes around and arguing about css frameworks that's what we're doing there, there's a big word that i think was a is a trigger for maggie which is transclusion so <laughs> this is actually a thing in angular but what does it mean for digital gardening transclusion so this comes from so the word itself is attributed to Ted Nelson and his writings back in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, so Ted Nelson invented the word hypertext. It came up also with this concept of transclusions and transcopyright. And these were all part of a, of a project called Project Xanadu, which was sometimes framed as an alternative to the web that never came to fruition, but was a large hypertext project. So that's the, the origin of the word, but the concept of transclusions goes back much further in history, which actually Chris Aldrich just actually wrote a really lovely post on his blog that kind of goes through the history of this in response to a piece I had transclusions. Um, essentially, it is when you have the same item in two places, but they're not copies, they're linked to each other. So if you change one, it changes in both places. And the idea of if we could make this work on the web somehow would completely change the way we structure information on the web because you wouldn't be copying things and, and having link rot. You would just constantly have things that are inherently connected and hold integrity. If we change one, they change in every instance. That's beautiful. I would also say <laughs> it's being built. It's, it, the, the thing is that it's all proprietary formats. When you do an embed in Notion, that's transclusion. It's actually a social unfurl, but there's some elements of transclusion that, that are more live and active than than just simple embeds or, or unfolds. Yeah, and, and the, for the developers in the room, there is a form of transclusion, which you've probably seen but haven't really given much thought about, which is documentation. When you inject live code samples or, or running code examples so that you can run tests on, on the stuff that you document, and you, and you take that and you inject it into your docs, that's also transclusion. And that's something that I've been sharing with every person who writes docs. It, it makes it more real because um, if when you tie it to Xanadu, they're like, oh, okay, this is like a weird concept because Ted Nelson, among many things, also invented teledodonics. So he's got like a weird reputation. Yeah, he's a wild thinker. We'll put it that way. You can go watch his YouTube channel if you want to get more of a vibe of what he's like. Anyway, I, I, I thought I, it's a fancy word. I like it, but we got to demystify it a bit. Yes, yeah. It, it literally, even like images on the web are technically transclusions. If you use the URL that links to the original image, it, it's just that it's pointing to an original point rather than you re-uploading the image as a fresh instance. Yeah, yeah, there we go. And is anyone, uh, I guess we should remind people that they can raise their hands if they want to talk about digital gardening. Yeah. By the way, Maggie, while we're, while we're bringing people, you had other metaphors that you wanted to, like digital forests, digital weeds. And then if we want to go off on metaphors, I'm always happy. <laughs> oh yeah, first of all, the digital gardens, I've been following them for a while and they're very cool. That idea of the digital farm and digital agriculture, I think that's super interesting. And my question is actually, what do you think is the future of collaboration in digital gardens? Because I feel like a lot of the applications I've been thinking of recently have been related to collaborative writing, the kind of thing that you get into Google Doc and have a ton of people or like to collaborate on. What do you think about those kinds of pieces? Because I feel like the um, non-linear format is really good for that, but I just really haven't been explored. Got it. Okay. The, the sound was, Katie, your sound's a bit muffled, but I can try to restate the question, which is, what do you think of collaboration with digital gardens? Because it pretty much is a 
solo endeavor for a lot of people. But there, there can be a lot of interesting things that happen when you have collaboration. And I, I think you mentioned something about a nonlinear format to collaboration. Oh, yeah, exactly. I feel like being able to have a record of collaboration, because a lot of it is just like real time and that the idea of the, the garden and the stream, it just goes away into the stream if you have a, a lot of discussions, a lot of meetings. So I think that on that level, it's really valuable just to have those memories of the, the collaboration, because there's a ton of good work that I feel like gets lost to memory, you know? Yeah. I have a thought on this, but I'll let Maggie go if you have anything. And I certainly agree that current infrastructure and, and tools we have available do not at all allow for yeah back and forth conversations. And I'm similarly very intrigued by the idea of gardens talking to each other. Or I always love the metaphor of here in the UK, we have a very strong cultural history of something called allotments, which where mm. you have a big community garden and everyone has an allotted amount of space. But they're huge community hubs, like everyone on the allotment knows each other. You all trade seeds and, and help each other, give each other advice on how to grow peas. It was started in World War One, I, I think, or at least in World War Two, it became big. But it's a really interesting structure for, for thinking about how you, that might extend to digital gardens, if we're keeping with the metaphor. But building allotment size groups, same way we used to have blog rolls, the same way we used to have small communities of blogs that were interlinked. That gets interesting because then you can have a limited amount of blogs to, to, to integrate with versus the idea of having to figure out how to integrate with the whole internet. So I'd love to see communities of smaller gardeners figure out how to make those connections on a smaller scale. Exactly. I love the idea of being able to share tools with teams. That's great. That's a great metaphor. If I could uh, chime in a little bit here. Sure. There's a few members within the Rome Research community who are building uh, a shared knowledge graph. And through the Daily Notes page, they are doing their digital gardening in tandem with each other. So as they're going about their day, they're updating, they're writing in notes, they're writing in what they're thinking, and each of them can comment on each other's like section of their graph, which is quite right up there with the analogy of an allotment where you can, while tend to your own garden, view other people's gardens, comment with them, interact with them, etc. And as I've talked to a few people who are researching into how can we build a communal or a community digital gardening experience or an environment where you can actually do these kinds of things, there's like multiple levels to it because you have to think about synchronous communication, which is like immediately right there, just in time, digital gardening and asynchronous communication where even after you're done with the digital gardening and then you walk away, there might be others who come in and they actually interact with your garden, your notes and respond in a way where it's beneficial. They might harbor insight, and you use that to develop your garden the next time you're in there to do some tending. So the issue there becomes how do you document that in a way where it doesn't get too messy because you have to worry about how individuals do digital gardening differently. So there's like different levels of moderation there. Like people are, like it can work really well. It can work really well, uh, albeit in a very small scale. But we are seeing some interesting use cases of that. Use cases of that so it's pretty awesome. Like collaborative digital gardening is right up there. And it's, it's all a matter of setting the rules beforehand. And then you can just tend to your own while talking to others. Because in the end, it's just like a really big conversation, really. So it's like a different type of medium that you just have to know the rules to it. And it will work really well. Katie, I, I have an example that's live right now of collaborative digital gardening. It's this guy. I, I've never come across him before. It's Chris Pike, C-P-A-I-K on Twitter. He's a venture capitalist, as they tend to be. 
but <laughs> let's just not hold this against them. But he published this thing called, and he just called it Frameworks V0.1. And he was like sitting on it, but it just exploded. Like he, hundreds of people have, like pretty influential people have like kind of quoted this thing. And, and it's a link to a Google Doc. And then in a Google Doc, there's hundreds of ongoing conversations about each of the points that he's making. And it's all Google account IDs and whatever. But in a Google Doc, you can just highlight something, comment on it, and then he can respond. And then other people who are reading can also respond to a comment. It's very collaborative. And he's evolving it. He, he published V0.1, and now it's at V0.2. So I guess he's made some progress. I, I don't know. But turns out you don't have to build anything with React or Svelte or, or whatever, or JavaScript. You could just use Google Docs, and it does a pretty good job. Wow. This is really fascinating, actually. Yeah. I love, love this idea of repurposing an existing or what already exists, right? Google Docs or, or Rome platforms we currently have in order to, to prototype ways we're going to make things in the future, because ideally in the future, we have some sort of protocols or more structural systems that would allow us to use like the native affordances of the web, HTML, to, to connect between things. But in the meantime, until we have that, the best we can do is try to imitate it or imitate what in sort of these hacky ways with existing tools. So I love that this is happening. Yeah, I'll sneak in a plug for web mentions. Uh, I think it's webmentions.org. That's a way to, I, I had some fancy name for it. I was like, this is the start of the metaverse for blogging. <laughs> so pretentious. Anyway, yeah, it's, we need to federate something with federate our comments without essential authority. And what mentions is a standard format to do it, but then you mm -hmm. still have to make something. You still have to centralize the scraping of data, so um, you can't really get away from that. Anyway, but Google Docs, like who knew? This is this is really great because the way that this came to my attention was people still commenting on it a week after it was launched. And then people were saying, like, they get more value out of the comments than the actual thing sometimes. Yeah, I, I like that to be more of a norm. And the traditional, like, blog post and then a discus widget at the end of the blog post, no one engages with that. No. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pull up uh, Tamara. Hey. Can you hear me? Oh, hi. Mine is just a quick, quick question. I was just... So the first, for the first time I heard, like, the concept, I really liked the idea of the digital gardening. But I'm just having a really hard time coming from like um, traditional note-taking and transferring that into a, a digital gardening. So I was wondering where you guys started yours. Do you have the same problem of tweaking the concept of it? Or I don't know, like how did you like transition from normal note-taking to gardening? Yeah. Um I don't know, just start and figure it out. You don't need you don't need like some grand theory or, or like a textbook to start. Like it's set it up your way in a way that makes sense to your brain. That's what I do. Yeah, I think of it as just an, an easy entry point is think of it as many blog posts that aren't perfect. That's not everyone's approach to digital gardening. Some people really just take their personal notes and put it up as their digital garden. And I like the idea that the, the term can be adjusted. Everyone's garden gets to look however they want it to. And in certain ways, you can let the word mean what you need it to mean for yourself. Words have meaning, but at the same time, we define them ourselves and it's a process of back and forth. But thinking of it as if instead of writing a blog post, you're just going to write a few thoughts and throw a few references in and you'll update it later. So it's just a work in progress. Part. That's really important. I think it's a transition from thinking that you want to publish something on the Internet, thinking that it has to be complete, it has to be perfect, it has to be presentable, has to be replaced. Because there's that fear of trying to make it look really pretty and presentable with a digital garden where anything is permitted. So it's more about just really posting something out there that is quick, that is easy, and that is bad. 
I like the first time that I started oh. doing digital gardening. Not that I'm calling your notes bad. It's just that from our perspective, no, no. we tend to view our own personal notes as not worthy of being posted on the internet. So the way that I reframed my own notes when I wanted to start digital gardening was to call them bad drafts. And I just posted it as bad drafts as a category to train myself that these are just notes in progress. And then you just write a little disclaimer somewhere in there, something like, this is a note in progress. I will tend to it later in the future. So at the very least, you remind yourself that it's perfectly fine. People will read that and that readers will know that this is an incomplete post, but you're posting it anyway, because you know that you will develop it later in the future. So when you are trying to understand that, embrace that, maybe start off with just only a few notes and get used to that understanding over time. And you should be fine. Like you should be perfectly fine. I think the, the beauty of digital gardening is that because anything is permitted, there are no expectations, which is why I called it bad drafts. So anything goes. Thanks. Like, I think, yeah, so that's very insightful. I think that's great. It's so freeing to think of, because I think I had that problem that I wanted to make things perfect. So I think that's the, my biggest problem of like why I'm not doing it starting in a good way. I guess maybe that's my problem. So thanks. Thank you. I have a rule that I've developed this year, I think, or maybe end of last year. It's called the three strikes rule. And so that's my bar for publishing anything, which is sometimes you don't want to publish uh, something the first time that you come across it. And, and so basically the, the rule is this that anytime you reference an idea, whether in your writing or in conversation with other people, and you find it useful and the other person finds it useful, if you reference it three times, then you have to write about it. So it's just an automatic, like one, two, three, write. Around two, and then once, you're, once you've written it, you're not done. You can actually keep building upon it as you develop your thoughts, but it forces you to produce on a more consistent basis when, you, when something has crossed a threshold of usefulness. Because like the first time you might forget it, it might be a passing fad. The second time you're still learning how to explain it and, and how it fits in your brain. The third time you're, it's, you're, it's probably going to be something you're going to refer to in the future again and again. So it's worth writing down and then so that you can have something to reference in future. So hopefully that's a nice rule to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. It actually makes, makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up. Um, I see Nikita's got his hand. Yeah, Nikita, we were talking about you earlier in a good way, don't worry. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know who was around for that, but we're talking about wiki.nikitavolobov.xyz, and this is up for nerds. They're like a clubhouse as a user, so it's uh, quite exciting. But I have two questions. First is, what do you like? Where do you know the, the boundary of digital gardens? Do you use your gardens to keep bookmarks? Yeah, that's like the first question. And second is, do you somehow keep track of what's in the garden? You know, 10% of my garden or I'm learning this part now. And if you do, like, how do you do it? Do you do it with tags or perhaps you want to do it, but you don't know how. But can you clarify the second question about knowing your God? Yeah, so um, you just... His audio is cutting in and out. Oh, yeah. It's just gone now. The Wi-Fi is bad, sorry. What was the first question? Do you use the garden for bookmarking? Is that, I think? I can say no. I, so my, my garden is very much the sort of beginnings of blog posts or beginnings of ideas that, that merge into essays. So I take less of the, like all the notes or like putting up things that are more collections. So mine's just a, a different variety of garden. I know some people do a lot more of the full notes or bookmarks or public learning stuff. But what about other people? I use GitHub for bookmarking. 
I know I, I I'm just realizing how frustrating this must be for someone who wants to explore everything that I do because I've I basically spread myself across four or five different platforms. So for example, design tools I put in a repo on my GitHub called Spark Joy, and that already has some crazy number of stars. 4.8 thousand stars just for all my design tool bookmarking. I also have, yeah, bookmarking for developer industry statistics, podcasting tools, automation tools, technical artists. I have a reference on like unique UUIDs because I think those are very interesting. How to launch when you launch a product. When I launched my book, I made a list of bookmarks. And I think it's a really good way to, the reason I put it on GitHub is so that people can contribute stuff. Because the process of PRing something into a repo is very well known, and people can start and watch it and get updates. I like that. I, I like that that bookmarking concept. So to me, it doesn't exist in the same mental space as my site, uh, because my site is very like me to the rest of the world. I'm broadcasting, whereas this is like explicitly a resource that I'm developing over time and has no end. And it's just a list of bookmarks. I don't know. Like, so I really, by the way, Nikita, I, I admire what you do. I have recommended a couple of times now to other people to to do. Because you use Gitbook and anything's better than rolling your own. But yeah, so I don't think I don't think there's a straight answer for this. Like I, I think what you do is great. I think what I do works for me. Yeah, that, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I bookmark things, but it's more, mainly for private use. So I don't think I tell people like what things I've discovered. So that's under a tag discoveries, and that is a little bit like you, Sean. Like like tools that I've discovered or interesting things that I've come across. But the one distinct bookmarking section that I do for my digital garden is concepts. So my analogy for my garden isn't a garden. And Maggie can attest to this because my analogy is completely different. It's a mine and I mine ores and I make alloys to make weapons. So that's like the growth or the progress <laughs> of a note reaching completion. And in alloys are complete notes and or concepts. And a subcategory of alloys are foreign alloys. So I call them foreign because I pull them from somewhere else outside of my head. So if it's something like, if it's an interesting little note I found in somebody else's garden, I'm like, oh, this is pretty nice. I've learned it. I'm going to take it. And I call it foreign alloy and I put it in my own digital garden. So yeah, there are two types of bookmarking there. Like bookmarking for interesting things and bookmarking for ways of understanding the world that I've pulled from somewhere else. Yeah, I love the idea of designing your own metaphors to fit your own system. Yeah, I feel like I'm a huge fan of that. People expanding off it or just, or just trying on metaphors for size and seeing how it changes the way they think about their notes and personal knowledge systems is, is a really intriguing idea. Uh, I was going to say, if you play Diablo, it rem you can get weapons and then you, you can enhance the weapons as well. Once like once, you're once you have the weapon and you're using it, exactly. if you have sockets, <laughs> you can like put gems into it and then upgrade it. Yeah, it's a nice... It's very, I think it's very guy. I wonder like what the gender split is between like these different metaphors. But anyway, off topic. Yeah, we can go into like the second question because I'm curious in that. The cool thing is that you actually are already going to the second question, especially I think with the uh, way Norman. And I think just to, to maybe reemphasize what I mean is how do you use your garden to actually learn things better and faster? And how do you keep track of uh, what you're learning next and what have you actually learned? Oh, so good. Yeah, Norman, do you want to take that? I, I, I don't want it to just be me and Matt trying to spread it um, around. Interesting. I understand the way that's being framed as like um, tracking what you're learning. I, I, I think of it so much more as about the process of thinking, which is learning, of course. But this idea of working through thoughts in the garden is just a medium as, as the minute that you have an initial thought or you start noticing a trend of certain things you're seeing around the web. And just having that outlet of, of somewhere to put it and then the, the 
coherent to another human because it's one thing to put things in private notes that we all do when we just pop it in and it's coherent to us but that imagining that someone else is going to have to comprehend this themselves and how to show them the trail you went down that got to that thought yeah I think of it in terms of the fact it's public but has the low barrier to entry that doesn't matter whether it's 100% correct or not or whether my idea is fully formed or not um, that you have just enough obligation to other humans without having the full obligation of a true essay or blog post that claims quote-unquote truth about a topic. I've got something which Nikita might enjoy, which is that I think that, so I think you and I, we, we, we both collect, we're, we're hoarders, we're like digital hoarders, but like I collect these things and then actually the kind of the purpose is to structure them. You have an unstructured list and then you group them together once you have like enough of a theory forming about what you believe and what different schools of thought are. And I, I, I liken it, I, I, don't, I think I've read a blog post about this, but I'm not sure what the name of it is and who it's from. But when you're playing with your Legos, you pour them all out and then you ask, what can I build with these things in front of me? You don't, have, you don't start with a preconceived knowledge of the field. So all you do is you just collect all this information and then the form eventually emerges um, organically just by the way that you process these things and the way that other people talk about them, you kind of intuit a view of the world that makes sense to you, then you write, write it down. And to me, so to me, the structure of how you organize a field of knowledge is as invaluable as the individual items within that field. Does that make sense? No, your audio is bad again. I do it a little bit differently. I do it twofold when trying to learn from a digital garden. It's more of the progress of a note about to take form, growing in progress, etc., which is very, it's what you expect uh, from a digital garden. But the, there is a, there's a second part to it where I try to embrace or embody the experience of growing that note over time, even if it stops at a, an atomic note or a small concept that's not grown out to a post. Maybe it's fine if it just stops at just a normal note and it doesn't actually evolve, and that's perfectly fine. The big one is the reflection of the experience in growing the garden up until that point, asking yourself, what have I learned up until then? And what are the different ways I can embody or embrace what I've learned and taught to myself up until now? So at that point, I, I face my garden or I face my knowledge graph as if this is a person that I'm having a conversation with. So most of the time, you write things into your graph. That's your past self to add on to your present self to prepare for your future self. So this is like a three-way conversation between three versions of yourself. And normally when you start to reflect, when you start to think about all these things, all these notes that you write in and you think, what's the point of writing them? Why am I trying to write them? What am I writing them for? What am I trying to learn here? And how can I apply it in real life from now on, etc. What is the intent behind each of these experiences? If I can understand that clearly, if I can articulate that well, that is evidence that I've learned something through my garden because otherwise if i can't answer that question i would have i'm just thinking about this thought for fun which may not necessarily translate to learning about set note or set topic or set field maybe i just thought it was interesting but yeah it's a lot of reflection at the end of a session of thinking in the garden oh that's really great yeah i like i think there's something in this in the second brain course Maggie actually was a TA for me in when I did the building a second break course. So uh, I feel like she has a better grasp of this uh, than I do. But I, I do think that a lot of times we glorify consuming more. Like, oh, I read 50 books this year. Oh, I, I like blaze, blast through 200 podcasts at 2x speed or 3x speed. And it's not really about like quantity of consumption. Like you could just read like one book 
one good book a year uh, and just like really internalize that, that, that actually is, is really much more valuable. So reflecting on your own notes, that actually unlocks a really good, it's almost time travel, right? It's like, like you said, it's like a message from your past self. I don't know. I think of this as like processing. Uh, I've got a question for you, Sean. When you write your notes, do you write in first person, second person, or third person? And does that affect your thinking and or the paths you choose? First person, because uh, okay. it's a personal thought, mostly. Sorry, if it's notes, I don't write in any person. I'm just, I don't know, it's like notes itself. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really think about it. Uh, Maggie, you are going to say something. Well, just going off the, the, the comment about volume versus quality, or there's a poetic phrase, which I definitely agree with you. I've... I think before even Second Brain, I definitely had fewer things, better quality, right? There's an, a very small number of books that you can really deeply internalize. And whenever there's the list of 50 books a year or, or the people are consuming them, the amount of value they're getting out of them is, is incredibly questionable. Um, and I've definitely taken the, the stance of writing evergreen notes with a few very selectively chosen books and reading them slowly and rereading them and spending long times with chapters and just more taking bits out of them and spending time connecting up pieces of a Rome graph to, to find interconnections with other notes and writing evergreen notes connected to them. I found that much more personally interesting, fruitful in terms of learning and realizations and just honestly valuable versus breadth. Like definitely going for exploratory depth versus just covering tons of material. So I'm definitely on the same page in terms of that. Yeah, it's, it's, so Tiago Forte has this concept of progressive summarization. When you go over a note, um, Sorry, when you go over a piece of content, you might have a shallow first layer, and the second time you go over it, you condense it even more, and the third and fourth time you even you condense it even more. So I think that's on like an individual piece of content basis, but you can also do that for your entire digital garden. You can have like progressive summarization for your garden. I have one final question. I hope my audio is okay. Yeah. But I'm curious. I'm unlike Maggie. I don't uh, do drawings because I can't draw. And I'm curious how that kind of helped you grow your garden. Do you, I know that you do this drawings to make concepts clear. Have you ever used the, that kind of skill to maybe guide other people in your garden? That kind of stuff. And it's interesting. I definitely don't see a big difference between illustration and web design as much in terms of the illustration. It is just like making, of course, you know, using symbols to make it visual, but it's very much mapping ideas in space. I think a lot about how thought and time map to space. And then the way we do that on the web, that if you think about the web as a 3D space. So I haven't necessarily looked much at using drawing to the website, but I would say UX and information architecture is the same thing there in terms of how you're visually presenting where layouts are and how you use things like micro interactions and hover elements to guide people through. Um, so I don't really pay attention to that. I'm not going to say I'm the world's best UX designer. I haven't been trained in it or spent a ton of 10,000 hours mastering it, but I think there's a lot to be explored there in terms of interaction and visual design versus straight text-based systems. Wow. I don't know if that was too off topic, but yeah, that's one of the ways I wish digital gardens thought more in terms of physical space versus just content, right? Like the, the way we present the content as a visual medium and using the web as space, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to play with. I think you're really going to enjoy those cosmic and, and nudes. I'm very curious as to your, your thoughts because you're a very visual thinker and I try to be, but I'm really bad at it. Nikita, for, in case it helps, like I also don't draw, but I use Excala Draw. So that is, that helps me visualize things for people coming through my garden. One thing I think, one way in which it worked really well for me is I had a blog post on how to create luck, where I basically summarized the schools of thought on luck and skill or 
developing skill at creating luck. And I visualized the, the, the blog post for people and it helped them navigate it. And it helped me unlock some insights as to like how to distinguish between schools of thoughts as well. So I, I, I recommend the exercise. Like it's, it's a good way to try it. You don't have to know how to draw. Yeah, things like Miro, Figma, Excalibur, those are wonderful things to play with, just to like get your feet wet. And yeah, even if you have the, the narrative of, oh, I'm not visual. Yeah, I, I think everyone can just play around in those and it makes you think differently. It's just fun as an exercise in itself. Yeah, you have a talk on how to do this. I think it's your React Ladies talk. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, had that one specifically on, technically it's on React metaphors, but it's really about visual thinking. I think, and yeah, just as an example, if you Google hyperfine village Rome research, this is actually like a, a nice example of a Rome research graph where I think uh, she uses the concept of rooms. So she has a museum, she has uh, a lab where she does research, and then you can navigate her graph in this way. And I think she also has like a visual map of where things are. So yeah, I think that's a nice example. Uh, Lisa Hardy, for anyone interested in that. Because uh, yeah, I was re reaching out to her to, to get her on the show to talk about that actually. So like potential topics to create this navigable space and probably to go back and forth on discussing how does that help someone understand your thoughts better or, or navigate through your digital garden better. Yeah, I highly recommend Hyperfine Village. It's pretty good. It reminds me of people who probably know memory palaces too, right? That concept of putting information in locations works very strongly for human minds and the way we remember things. So this looks like just beautiful. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I think I found the image that Norman was talking about. It's Lisa Hardy on Twitter or Hardy underscore A. It's like a really bad handle. But she has this, <laughs> this really cute, uh, she calls it a like hyperfine village where it's like a, she has a garden here and a library, a museum, a bank, a gym, office. Uh, and she draws the village as, of her mind. It's pretty cool. I'm going to put it in the links. Um, I've been collecting all the links that, that we've uh, referenced. And we'll, I guess we'll tweet it out at the end of this thing. Oh, it's really good. I was thinking link sharing in, in Clubhouse is clearly a missing affordance. Because you've mentioned so many things. But yeah. thank you for doing that, Sean. Uh, I have a problem with these like venture-backed companies. Like relying on their users to like work around the things that they just don't care enough to build. <laughs> that obviously need to be built anyway. Yeah. Anyway, we, we, we've, been, we've been going for a while. Uh, are there any more questions or shall we, do you think we should start? I think one, one last thing that, that is cool. So I think oh, yeah. most of the hundred rabbits are. What I find really cool about them, aside from the stuff that they built, is that they create their own like language. They create their own like tools and software. And I think it'd be interesting to explore the space of uh, maybe creating a language that is targeted for exploring and navigating digital gardens. Oh, wow. That does sound cool. Can you, I'm thinking of whether we can make a tweet thread of this afterwards or where people can share stuff. Because I can also see Christian has a raised hand in, in waiting, but I'm thinking we wrap it up at some point soon. But I'd love to continue the conversation on Twitter or a Google Doc with comments if anyone's more into that. All right, I'll make a, I'll make a doc. Yeah, because yeah. there's a bunch of stuff and we can continue this conversation. But it's not going to be our last time talking on, on this format. I always like catching up with you, Maggie. It's really great. Yeah, and thanks for everyone for coming. There's so many familiar faces uh, in the chat. And yeah, it's just wonderful to have an outlet to chat about this because otherwise we end up holding it on Twitter and it just doesn't have the same, you can't cover as much ground and just not a stint. Yeah, that's great. Thanks everyone for, for joining then. I guess we'll see you online and you can check out our Twitters for links. Mm -hmm. I've been recording uh, this on YouTube as well for those who want to catch up basic. Bye. Bye.